0: Listening to the Magnet Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Magnet Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Lewis Kornfeld, my guest today, the great Matt Shafiq. Thank you for being here, Matt. Thank you for having me, Lewis. You have been in and out of Megawatt since the beginning of Megawatt. Yeah. I'm old school. From the very beginning. We go back, you were in the first generation of teams, right? I was, It was yeah. pa- Pax Romana. Yep, that's right. So you're, I'm going to try to walk through the major teams that you've been a part of. Go ahead. Been Pax Romana. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Fuka, there was scotch before Fuka.
0: scotch before Fuka. Fuca, Fuca and... Featherweight. Uh-huh.
1: Metal Boy. Uh-huh. And also you're playing with your modern Diaz experience.
0: Uh, you missed one. Which there one? was Oswald. Oswald. <laughs> <laughs> What era was Oswald? Oswald was, I think, post Gosh, just before Fuca. Uh Frank Bonomo was on it. Kevin Crag. I think it was Emily Shapiro's first team.
1: Right, Russ Armstrong. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, one of those like, like weird transitional periods.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was an it was an odd mix of a team. Like, uh, as with other groups I've been a part of, like everyone there was enthusiastic and talented and fun. But like those things sometimes just don't
1: don't mesh. There were like discrete. Eras. There was the first generation of teams mm-hmm. who were pretty much everybody in team performance. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And then there was um, a bit of a shake up. And then the next round of teams were like that era where Armando was trying to kind of like stratify the teams a little bit. Yeah. There was like Thursday
0: teams and Saturday teams. Yeah. I I, I tell everyone at Junior Varsity who's still around right now, yes. who was formed almost a decade ago at this yes. point. Uh, they called themselves that because they were a lesser Thursday night team. Yes. That's the origin story behind this team that is now an institution at the Magnet Theater. Yeah. <laughs>
1: the idea was to um, kind of give people something to work towards. Yeah. Um, and that ended up not working very well. And so then there was the shakeup from that era. mm mm-hmm. Uh, and then the reunifying of megawatt back to a single night instead yeah. of splitting it into like weekend megawatt and, and midweek megawatt. Yeah. And then that was the kind of like weird transitional thing where you're getting a lot of like old timers relieving, influx of newcomers. Yeah. Um not the best gelled period for megawatt, if memory serves. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Fuca era where teams were kind of coalescing and and had a, a um stronger bond with each other
0: a lot of teams lasted for a while i think during yes. that era.
1: and featherweight came from the fuke era yeah yeah um it's very interesting what's it like i don't know you and i are both like old hats at this now we've both seen the place grow from the ground up we actually go further back than that you and i met in pre-magnet days that's right
0: uh i can't remember the very first time we met was it in one of armando's like electives that he was teaching th- on his own
1: it was either instant brilliance or slow comedy yeah i think it may have been slow comedy that sounds about right um, I remember a run of shows that we did at Juby Hall. Yeah. If memory serves, we were in class together back at that old crappy studio on 43rd street.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right.
1: Um, like really shitty place <laughs> with like that, like rinky dink elevator. <laughs> I guess there's no question here. It's just kind of like reminiscing <laughs> just, about
0: like this is giving you the nostalgia podcast. That's yeah, great. I guess so. Um, question for you. So I my path was UCB to Pitt to Armando on his own yeah. to Magnet. Were you ever doing Pitt stuff? Or no. Did you-
1: my path was UCB to Armando on his own. Okay. And that was kind of those went together. Yeah. And then when I finished the old UCB program, I just kind of followed Armando. Got it. I had known of Armando from reading this book called um, The Art of uh Chicago Improv. Okay. Where there's a chapter on um IO and a chapter on 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 the Armando Diaz experience. So I knew of him and the book made like a little bit of a big deal of the fact that um at that point, people in Chicago didn't even realize that Armando was a real person. His name had just become like an institutional name. Nice. And then shortly after reading that, there was a guy in my uh, level three UCB class yeah. who uh, uh, found out that Armando was in the city and teaching classes, which at that point were $99 classes for eight weeks of, of time with Armando.
0: Back in the day, Lewis, back in the day, you could get a, a subway pass for a nickel you and can't, uh can improv <laughs> pass for ninety dollars nine
1: can't beat it <laughs> um yeah, what was your like what brought you to it to begin with
0: oh my god uh i I told this story to someone recently uh improv is maybe the first and only thing in my life that was like a a love at first sight situation. I didn't discover it at all outside of like whose lines it anyway uh until I came. I graduated from college and was hanging out in the city. Um, I had a love affair with theater when I was a kid and and in junior high school. Not so much in high school. I went to uh, Williams College, a small liberal arts college in the Berkshires, that was well known for its theater program. And I went there assuming I was going to be a theater major, but I wound up hating the program. It was like really really serious theater i always call it the theater with the re kind of mm. theater that just never seemed to gel well with me
1: doesn't it like it, it, a lot of discipline
0: but not a lot of like uh, fun fun <laughs> just, or, or like personal relevance to you yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it um so it, you know it was a lot of theory stuff and uh, the, the classes i took were just not that interesting to me and i didn't gel well with my fellow students i just remember like there was this moment where uh, we had a visiting professor. I think it was uh, her name was Tina Shepard from, from New York City, where I was from too. And uh, she came in. She was a method actress and she taught a class, which we were instructed to just get on the floor and uh, and get from one side of the room to the other, not using our arms or our legs. Mm-hmm. And my gut reaction to that was, this is crazy. <laughs> this is, what is this insane thing. And everyone is just wriggling on the floor immediately. And that's uh, so when I realized that I was the odd man out. I was not the person who clearly didn't belong in this program. So I went up being a theater major. I went up kind of f- just abandoning that dream. And it wasn't until a year after I got out of college, I um, was taking a sketch cat class at Gotham Writers workshop and Andy Milanakis, I don't know if you know him at all. Oh, he's sure. a performer. Yeah. Um, he came into that class and he said, have you heard of UCB? You should check it out. And I went and the first show I saw, I was like, where has this been all my life? Sign up for a class the next day and have really not, taken much of a break ever since then
1: what was the first show uh
0: it was it was a uh I believe a, they had Harold Nights back then it was mm-hmm. the equivalent of a Harold Night. I what, what year was it this would have been spring or early summer of 2002 okay it was so yeah there was,
1: a, there was definitely Harold Night.
0: yeah 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 it was in the old space mm-hmm. uh I I think they had three spaces in those first couple of years that was there. There was like the place that was the old strip club. Mm -hmm. Then there was something else briefly. And then there was uh, the current space that they have out there. So I just started seeing, I got, I I remember like grabbing all the postcards for like every show and like, uh, and just wanting to see all of them, like planning my life around this new art form that I discovered and then taking classes and loving them and uh, it consuming my life for the better part of my twenties.
1: Yeah. Very similar thing for me too. I basically just gobbled my twenties up. That became how I spent my, yeah. that era. Well, I don't know what everybody else does in their twenties, but <laughs> that was it for us. <laughs> um, uh, so what was your early experience? When did you start performing regularly?
0: Uh, I was on the, <laughs> one of the very first rounds of both at the magnets uh, uh, house teams and also uh, the Pitts house teams. Hmm. I, joined the pit when they were just starting, took one of their like, equivalent of a team performance class, and was put on a team called King Tiny that uh, I believe Kevin Cragg and Sean Taylor were on. And uh, that team did not last very long. I think none of those teams did. Uh, it was a very weird kind of transitional period for that theater. But um, uh, I was performing regularly for a brief time then. I remember that. And then I guess not again until the very first round of house teams at uh, the Magnet but since I was put on Pax Romana over a decade ago now, I think at this point, um, I have only taken, I think a six month break, uh, in my entire time performing.
1: Do you remember what prompted the
0: break? Oh, that was uh, featherweight broke up and I was in the middle of school at Columbia and I felt like, Oh, I should focus a little bit more time on my writing. But, yeah. uh, the second, you know, I had a little bit of a break in my time and the Megawatt auditions, uh, came up again. I, did it as you were there and you put me on metal boy and it was a great decision. And now I'm back.
1: Thank you. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of veteran improvisers who all insist that taking time off is one of the best things that you can do. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I've never taken time off. (laughs) (laughs) I think the definition of taking time off, like uh, improv has never consumed my life to the point, maybe maybe it did some brief points in my twenties, but like, it's never been a thing where I feel like I don't have time for anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I love the balance of having like one or two nights of my life be improv and that can be performing, rehearsing, seeing shows, some combination of those things and then having the rest of the week to do everything else. Mm-hmm. Like I really like that balance for me and like I'm focusing more on my writing right now. And so that's a nice thing. And so like improv helps, I think every aspect of my life, including my writing, like creative outlets and just general, I think it's a great thing for like, anyone to practice and learn and be mindful of like I don't uh sign up for a lot of different uh uh, philosophical kind of like uh I want to call it uh, too spiritual I'm not a very spiritual person but I definitely believe in a lot of like the core tenets of improv and how it can affect other parts of your life mm-hmm. and the value of that. So going off on a tangent there, but uh, I, I like that balance of, of performing once a week. I, I'll do that for the rest of my life if the opportunity affords it yeah. to me.
1: A lot of people have that like almost almost like conversion experience with improv, where like I guess it fills the gap that a lot of people feel like uh, some kind of spiritual value would be would be useful in. You know, like yeah. Um, uh, so, like, what is that for you specifically? What, 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 like, corner of your life has that enriched?
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of little things. You know, uh, I think about whenever I, I, I go over this stuff, but I know for sure that like I'm much better listener mm. than I was uh, before improv. And like, I, I think I think Carly talked about this on on her episode of the podcast I listened to the other day. Um, but when I first started doing improv, for sure, the first easily two years or so I was always like going into scenes with like something in my back pocket that idea of like all right I got into improv in the first place because I thought I was funny and I'm like all right uh improvising is great and all but I have lots of ideas and I'm going to bring those ideas into my improv and like I didn't get good at improv until I finally accepted that like no like a A, you're not funny most of the time your ideas aren't that great Mm -hmm. uh and, and b the the beauty of like coming in, listening, paying close attention and, and discovering something together. Like that's such a wonderful thing that I think can apply to like just any conversation you have ever. I feel like people come into most conversations in their life with some kind of agenda. Mm -hmm. And, and to this day I still kind of find myself doing that, but whenever I can allow myself to just talk or, or let there be quiet or listen, really listen to what the person has to say and let the conversation flow as it, it should naturally.
1: Have you ever read uh, Games People Play by Eric Byrne? No. So that was written, it's like from the early 70s, I okay. think. The, the the phrase, I'm okay, you're okay, mm-hmm. comes from Eric Byrne's okay. uh, school of, of psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and the basic gist of that book is... Um, that as a child you require a certain amount of attention and and in the early phase of your life you require like direct physical attention. You need contact with other human beings uh, for like a well-regulated emotional life. And, you know, there's lots of studies that say that like kids get sick if they're being physically neglected, even if like they're being fed and, and tended to. Yeah. If they're not being like touched and and spoken to kindly, they yeah. like shrivel up and get wow. really ill. yeah. And as you get older, um, that need for physical contact starts to be replaced by sort of symbolic gestures that uh, approximate physical contact. So acknowledgement is the kind of big thing. There's a certain amount of acknowledgement that every person requires. And uh, the idea is that we have struggle to ask for that acknowledgement very directly And instead, we develop all these different strategies, what he calls games in the book, in which we're kind of manipulating people without realizing it, without being deliberate. But we fall into certain patterns and for certain behaviors that kind of compel the people around us to end up, despite themselves, giving us the kind of attention that we're craving. Yeah. And so much of the book is the ways in which that ends up kind of choking out our life because you become addicted to these, like, habits that are suffocating but you're also addicted to the to the attention that you get. Yeah. And improv has always kind of struck me as this really interesting thing where you are wearing down to a certain degree these games that you're playing off stage and replacing them with this game that you're consciously choosing to engage with in which under the umbrella of just pretending with each other you are able to simulate this back and forth of Stroking one another, yeah. giving each other these these uh, like bits and pieces of attention that you require, and it ends up satisfying that need. In, mm-hmm. From getting the laugh from an audience, from getting the attention from an audience, and from getting the full undivided attention of like fellow partners on stage, and I think that part of it is like you learn the trick of doing it so well on stage that you loosen up a little bit off stage. Yeah, you spot your own games a little bit better off totally. stage. Totally,
0: absolutely, that's a great way of putting it.
1: Not, you don't break them. You still indulge in them, but you're kind of aware of them, and yeah. you have more sense of humor about it. It's not like the serious matter of of like emotional life or death to you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a hundred percent it. Like, yeah, I'm definitely a lot more self aware than I was of my particular habits and stuff. And and yeah, like that narcissism. It, it's funny because it's both like you're indulging in it and you're accepting it and you're playing with it. Like a, you're you're present in this way on stage that you cannot be any other way but there's an audience there watching you hopefully laughing at you and uh and that's that's like kind of kind of why you do it but there are all all these other side benefits that you get out of doing it that just i just i think actually make you a more well-rounded person
1: well the experience of being able to just deal with a situation on the spot and i think the experience of of uh uh coming face to face with this part of you that when you get rid of all the planning and you get rid of all of the, all of the showing off mm-hmm. there is embedded in you this intelligence that is able to get you through stuff and not only get you through stuff, but also get you like, will make you say and do very clever, wonderful things. And I think that like having that experience routinely, it's interesting because like the, the, the longer I stay with improv the less um i'm like interested in like philosophizing about it mm. which probably sounds like bullshit to anybody who's in my class because all i do is philosophize <laughs> about it incessantly but i don't, actually don't like i find that i like having the conversations after the fact yeah you have the experience of improvising and then it's fun to like talk about like the mechanics of what exactly just happened but actually just like gushing over all the wonderful values of it. I'm like not terribly interested in what I like so much about improv is that it's a very practical way of getting you in touch with that embedded intelligence inside yourself that I think your ego has a tendency to sort of distrust or like not listen to. So like your ego leads you to do things like keep that hilarious character (laughs) in your back pocket and, and, I'm just, I'm going to find a way to pull this bad boy out because this is going to be really funny. And it's actually like a real lack of trust in yourself to do that. For sure. So maybe that accounts for a certain degree of the conversion experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so, I, I don't remember the day it happened, but like thinking about like the day I stopped being afraid of getting up on stage. And before that, the day I stopped, you know, forcing myself to have something in my pocket, you know, like, uh, it happened around the time I was starting doing stuff at the magnet, and it was it was very freeing, and that's when I really started to have a good time. What
1: stage. kind of stuff did you take on stage with you and keep in your back pocket? What were your tendencies?
0: Uh, um, you know, it tended to be like the second. If if I was in a set where you know we were all going to have the same suggestion, like I was in a Herald and the suggestion comes out, I would immediately start thinking up a clever scene that could happen. Mm. You know, like okay, let's see. I bet time travel would be really clever if you know, I heard the word time in there. So let's see, we'll do something time travelly, and I'll, I'll have I'll be a scientist, and I'll have the and I'll like in my head allow for the other person to <laughs> to be able to do their own thing. But of course, you know, the second you like have a premise set up, like you're you're scripting improv in a way that it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, but it's it's a, cr- it's a crutch. It's like a weird. Uh, Unfortunate crutch to bring with you uh, on stage, and and it only hurts your potential scene work. Yeah, it. it, You almost
1: can't help but have the outcome already kind of determined in mind. You're like you're hearing the audience laughing as you're getting on stage. Yeah, and then you're just doing everything that you can to like pull the situation in the direction you want it to go. Right. Right. Is that so? For you, is that is that coming out of like a protective thing or is that coming out of a showing off
0: thing? I think it's some combination of both, you know, where like, uh, I'm, it's safer, it's a safer move if I have this ready to go. You know, like I remember my early days, a couple of early class shows I did, you know, the first couple of scenes would kind of bomb yeah. and, uh, uh, from fellow classmates or even scenes involving me. And I panic at that point cause I had friends in the audience, you know, and I can't let them down. I can't let them think I suck at this thing that I've been talking about nonstop for the past two years or whatever um and so in order to to get as best guarantee you can that the improv scene goes well whatever you do this counterintuitive thing of like trying to wrangle you know pre-planned things um but so it's definitely about protecting the ego and also you know i i've i was always the class clown growing up you know i i I got into improv thinking like oh i'm so naturally suited for this you know And, and like I think I have some strengths that help me out with improv, but I had to like abandon that level of ego that like I went into improv with kind of ironically. The thing that like m- sign up for it immediately, I also almost had to like learn how to give it up, give mm-hmm. it up uh, to eventually get good at it.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting, there's a spiritual lesson in that. <laughs> Here we go. But I, I mean, that's because I think that that's true. You do like to like proceed on your path. You do have to kind of give up the thing that, you were holding so like dearly, yeah, uh uh what was the nature of your class clown
0: <laughs> uh, it was a kind of an epiphany I remember having uh early early on in like elementary school i was just I was always a good kid, um and I think you get bored of being a good kid, even when even when you are kind of a people pleaser, which i think I, I I was mostly most of the time growing up um but like that very first, I remember I, I got a memory in my head, of like the very first time I like stood up in class and said something like dumb, but um, like purposefully dumb, and got a big laugh from the class, and even the teacher kind of laughed too. It was like a socially acceptable form mm-hmm. of disruption, and there's something really addictive about that. So I quickly like latched onto that feeling and was doing all kinds of things, just like you know, like physical pratfalls, kind of dumb things. I actually have in like fourth or fifth grade. I literally put a banana peel on the floor and like ran across it slipped and fell on my back and it hurt so badly because I had never tested this out before how slippery banana peels actually are this was just me being trying to be a cartoon character um so that became just like and it became a core identity thing you know I was not a jock I was not really the smartest kid in the class um so like I found I had a knack for this thing and that that became the part of my personality that I like most try to develop.
1: That core identity thing is really interesting. I, my class clown developed a little later than yours. Yeah. Mine didn't come out until like seventh grade. Okay. Um, but I also remember like after that sort of discovery and after that sort of feeling of like, oh, I have the power in this situation. Then kind of like feeling the way that my brain cells are just like working like busy little bees to now construct a core identity around that experience. Yeah. interesting and like for me it happened in that like pre-adolescent phase like right where my brain was really ripe to take an imprint for like what my grown up personality is about to be it's like that last (laughs) moment of childhood where it's like you're about to set yourself (laughs) and then it happened and that's like my core identity is like a little bit of a smart ass (laughs) I I was more of like the the uh, um like verbal class clown, a sure. uh, smart aleck, yeah. Or like uh, deliberately like failing tests to write <laughs> answers that I thought w- would be, if not funny to the teacher, then certainly funny to brag about y- later. You took on. it that
0: far, huh? You actually like would deliberately fail a test. Oh
1: yeah, Charlie Whitcroft and I in high school we would like sometimes compete in English class to see who could write the most hilarious answers on <laughs> on English tests. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty great it's like it's sort of like a thrilling a thrilling thing yeah. to like not take things seriously in high school.
0: Yeah. Um I it's funny cuz yeah, uh, the difference between you and me is like I would I would joke right up until the point where the test was in front of me and then I panicked like, well, I can't let my grade slip. And <laughs> I have to do well, like the idea of purposely blowing a test, uh, uh, is kind of, it's really admirable and blows my mind. Cause I was never that brave in my opinion to do that.
1: What well, wasn't that brave? It was a cocky thing. Sure. Cause I, I wouldn't do it for
0: like a science class. I, see. I, I would
1: do it for an English class where I always kind of knew in the back of my head that yeah. like, no matter how far this goes, I, I, I'm very cocky in my abilities and English you'll pass, class. you'll pass the
0: class. You're not yeah. going to, you're in danger of failing the class. Yeah. So I guess that's like the
1: closest I ever came to that feeling that like you must have if you're a pretty good athlete or that feeling of like, Oh, my shit doesn't stink. I'm pretty proud of my, I can be a little bit of an asshole now <laughs> and disruptive and annoying. Yeah. And, and you know, but like, like, yeah, I'm good
0: at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the biggest, the boldest move I made in my, in my early days of being a comedian slash writer was, uh, I started a fan club for myself. That's great. Yeah, it was the Matt Trafique fan club, and it started on a nugget of an idea. I handed out a slip of paper that I had printed out, or actually multiple copies of this thing, to all my friends in seventh grade saying, uh, your good friend Matt Trafique is about to start a fan club. Or, the, the fan, I actually made it very official that like, someone, the fan club was starting. It wasn't like me starting the fan club for myself. It was going to be a fan club. And uh, it was like a survey, and from then on, it was this big self deprecating inside joke of like here's a guy who doesn't deserve a fan club but he has one and so like i hand out the survey that had all these like what the fuck what why would i possibly subscribe to this whatever but at the same time I'd be like all right subscription dues are 250 they're due next week whatever if you're going to pay them and i started publishing a monthly newsletter uh that i kept going like up until college basically wow uh, i had a copy of it in the uh, high school yearbook and it was like this like really funny like uh just Dumb way for me to have something to write and distribute every every week, and the humor was all like really lame and and I look back on it it's kind of cringeworthy now, but it was all like self deprecating so it was safe in that sense. Mm-hmm. I was always like willing to be the punchline of all my jokes um but uh yeah it was I look back on it very fondly as like as like me my first kind of creative outlet that I created for myself
1: that serious commitment to go with that all the way through through college, yeah, yeah, my thing. I uh, I had this great jacket. I loved it. I bought it at the Warner Brothers store. It was it had a denim. It had, like, sweatshirt sleeves, uh-huh. but, the, like, the main body of the jacket was denim, and on the back was all the Warner Brother characters <laughs> embroidered, and it said, that's all, folks, nice. which I always thought it was, like, really great, you know? And I used to line the pockets with mayonnaise and mustard <laughs> and ketchup and, like, sporks and knives and salt and pepper and shit, like, packed with it. And then my thing was always, like, looking for... Whenever there was like a young lady with like food in front of her, I would like pull out the condiment (laughs) with a you're welcome and then just disappear. And that was my thing. It's like I strike, I step out of the shadows, I help you enjoy your meal and then I'm gone. There's no explanation about it. I did that for about a year. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's funny. It's I, like
1: idiocy, just like stupid. But like this, like incredible joy. Yeah, it was like something very freeing and liberating in realizing, like, for sure, oh, I'm a clown here. It's yeah. great.
0: Yeah, yeah. You ever think back, like uh, you had uh, Charlie Woodcrafts, who's still around. Um, like if all of your current improv friends, if you could travel, take them all, travel back in time with them, and like go to school with all of these funny people. Yeah,
1: I bet most of them would be, if not really good students, really smart. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I bet they were all like those people who were like not exactly the overachievers yeah. for the most part, but not like the ones who were like sharp enough to to have a bad attitude about yeah. everything. It starts too, like so it starts with self deprecation. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember like like a moment of epiphany f- feeling that like pre adolescent. Angst that you feel and feeling that like nobody likes me, thing that you feel and I remember like like a cloud parting moment. And, like I I really I remember this as if it really happened, but it's very possible it's just become part of like my own personal <laughs> mythology. Sure. Yeah, you know? yeah. But like there's just like this moment of of realization that like no matter what you do, you're going to be the butt of the joke. So just go with it. Yeah, and it like and that like made all the difference that that changed everything so it starts with like self-deprecation but then very quickly you find that this doesn't work this new character that you're becoming doesn't work if you don't enjoy being this person right if you can't create a fan club for yourself if you can't endure being the weirdo proudly until people break and then just decide that you like know what you're doing it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like the pity party only goes so far. And then it has to be this thing of actually the source of all this stuff is this weird pride I have (laughs) in this stupid thing that I'm doing. And it actually like, there's a lesson that Armando taught in a slow comedy class one time that, that like finally putting towards this thing that I had been like feeling since junior high school, Mm -hmm. which is if you can relax and be yourself the people around you feel comfortable to relax and be themselves too. And that was kind of like my lesson as the clown was like, oh, I'm being an idiot on behalf of the people around me because like their first thing is to laugh at this dope. But then you notice everybody starts dancing at the party now. You know what I mean? Like uh, um, it's a very valuable lesson for us budding class clowns. All you kids (laughs) listening, be proud. You're doing
0: a a service to everyone in the room. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: I think that's true, though, right? like yeah. because like think about that age, right? like your brain is like hardening itself, and you're just kind of like everything's about conformity at that point, yeah, and how many people get stuck hardwiring themselves into this conformist attitude that they spend the rest of their lives resenting mm-hmm. and and are never exactly sure like what specifically they're resenting? It's just this feeling of like clutter yeah and so you know you get older and you lash that resentment just starts going out at all these different targets you know what i mean like anything that looks like something that will like get rid of some of that like pressure and shit like that and it's just like oh you didn't have like you don't have like mental flexibility (laughs) you don't have that ability to like humiliate yourself for other people's amusement yeah
0: it's an important role
1: to play. You need that person who's like causing that degree of like disruption in the room.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's like the first moment too, where you can be a little bit introspective and be like, "All right, you know, there are these things about me." It's like that tricky balance of like, you know, you can be self-deprecating, but like and like believe the joke, like there's a kernel of truth here, or I'm being stupid on purpose, and I'm willing to have people potentially laugh at me instead of with me. Yeah. But uh, but also like to believe in yourself enough. Like you know, the Masterpiece fan clip was a was this thing where like this funny balance of like, Oh, I have a pretend fan club. I shouldn't have a fan club. I don't deserve a fan club, but I have a fan club right. and that's kind of awesome and kind of fun. Um, and I, I think I've managed to ride that way for a while that find that nice balance of like, I have an ego, but I'm willing to make fun of myself. But you know, I'm a little bit of a narcissist, uh, but you know, I'm, but I'm making fun of myself the whole time. So how bad could that be? Right.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm both confident in myself, but also, um, uh, humble enough to laugh at what an asshole I am. <laughs> yeah. I used to, I had to think briefly, I didn't do this for too long, but like if I liked a girl, I would write like a five to 10 page long comic uh, telling the story of my life up to the moment where maybe we go out question mark. And That's then that awesome. would be like left and never worked. <laughs> It took a lot of effort
0: women that, that that was the one category that like I really struggled with and, and the, and being funny thing, like almost hurt me. I yeah. think it was one of those things where I became friends with so many women sure. and, uh, but it never seemed to work out where it's like, all right, all joking aside, you know, we should go out, you know? And, you know, when I actually got the nerve up to say that, but, uh, yeah, that was, that was a lesson that waited until my twenties to actually figure out that balance of like, uh, you can be funny, you can be the one of jokes, whatever, but you can, Be more serious and be more confident. Whatever, it's uh, it's a whole other world that uh, eluded me for a very long time.
1: I kind of feel like funny has to grow into um, sex appeal. Yeah, Um, I'm gonna get in trouble for saying this, but it's my belief. And what are you gonna do? Controversy coming here, it comes. (laughs) Um, But like, because like, what is like being funny teaches you flexibility. Um, unless you're like Larry the cable guy or something but like being funny teaches you how to be flexible It teaches you how to have a strong ego that's able to weather the stuff that like you otherwise might become cripplingly insecure about yeah but it's a strong enough ego that like it bends because you're always kind of the subject of your own joke, right? But then like you can't just get hung up on spending the rest of your life wearing floral print shirts and, and telling horrible puns and giving people mustard whenever they are eating food or something. <laughs> right. Like the next thing with flexibility is you have to learn how to kind of enjoy your life a little bit more. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I do think that there's a certain amount of like enlightened mind in the comic brain if it doesn't hard set into like bitter arrogance. Yeah. A certain amount of bitterness is really good, but if you just become like angry at the world and pissed yeah. off, I think you're missing out on some of the rewards of of having your brain accidentally hardwired to become a comedian's brain. Yeah. And along with that flexibility as as you mature and begin ripening as a person, I think that like enhanced uh sex appeal is part of that. And I don't mean like creepy asshole sex appeal. Right. I don't mean the effort that's going into like putting on a show and shit yeah but i mean that kind of like relaxed confidence and easygoing ability to both be friends with yourself and extend that friendliness to the people around you yeah that makes someone increasingly attractive and i do think that you have to kind of graduate to that as you grow i agree you just don't know that when you're 12 years old it's impossible yeah Yeah,
0: it's like it's too complicated of a lesson just being funny and finding that balance of like being funny without being an asshole, whatever, I think it's hard enough. But then, yeah, there is that next level, that, that, that quiet confidence that can, I I think a person who can be the funniest person in the room, but can also not be, can choose to be the quietest person in the room. That's so fucking respectable. Like it's, it's amazing. Um, And I I think it's what I kind of aspire to be. Like I, I, I have friends who are not improvisers at all that like, you know, they kind of think lowly of improvisers when of the improvisers I think of everyone constantly ribbing each other constantly making jokes back and forth non-stop non-stop but uh, uh and there's not maybe a kernel of truth to that i don't necessarily agree with it but i like being able to turn it off and just hang out in a room and have a nice casual conversation like we're having right now that's not loaded with bits back and forth but we can talk intellectually about comedy or alternatively we can just do bits for the next half hour and we're both happy either way
1: uh agreed it, i hate being around comedians where I'm like exhausted to be around them, yeah. it gets tiring after yeah. a while. it shows like good taste to be able to like relax a little bit absolutely, but then to also go for the jugular the moment that you can't opportunity yeah. strikes, yeah, that's like timing man you got like there's a great pleasure in art and timing in knowing the right moment to take your shot and and yeah and the right moment to not it's yeah. interesting like. The impression that non-improvisers have of improvisers, I think, tends to be they assume that we're all the floral shirt-wearing crowd. They assume that we all walk like um, the Czechoslovakian brothers... and we're all constantly... <laughs> the two wild and crazy guys. Yeah. <laughs> they think that we always just have this like energy where we're just trying to make everything silly. Yeah. Or like we're trying to like find multiple use of props all the time and right. shit like that. They right. think that our entire lives are like one coked-out Robin Williams routine. Yeah. Whereas the reality of improvisers, when they're turned on like that, tends to just be not really a silliness. It's, it's more of like at the bar looking to see how far you can push something. How mean you can get without coming across as mean? Yeah, that that seems to be more it to me in my experience. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, um, I've actually never been particularly good at that. Uh, uh, oh, me that neither. like keeping it on the whole time. Yeah, I, I think we're kindred of spirits like that. Like it's it's takes a lot of effort, and it's and that's like the the level of which uh, like I, I've never been particularly good at. And a couple of times I've tried it. Yeah, I just uh, back to being that people pleaser that I've always been.
1: It, well, there. Yeah, yeah. For from me, this is going to sound insincere, <laughs> but it's really not. It it, uh, uh, it it took me a while to kind of come to terms with the fact that like somehow my life had ended up in like the comedy world. Yeah, um, because when I started improvising, like the comedy side of it wasn't exactly a goal. It, it had more to do with that thing of of accessibility in the arts. It had more to do with creating material that wasn't that like serious stick up the ass thing that you're talking about in college. Yeah. But was like relevant that felt like fresh and alive and spontaneous and relevant and personal. Yeah. Felt like alive and personal. So to me, that was the appeal, not knowing anything about improv, that was the appeal of of learning a little bit about it. Um and then after being with it for a couple of years. And just kind of finding myself on teams, it like actually was a thing of like, I have to give up a little bit on on this idea that I'm going to somehow be make, using improv to make like indie films on stage, because that's not what this is. I'm in a comedy theater and I have to kind of own up a little bit to like, okay, our job is to make comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's never exactly been my goal. That was always sort of like an accommodation to just like be better at the job. Right my goal was always something a little bit different. So I like getting to do bits with people, but I also don't like keeping that as like a 24-hour
0: thing. Yeah, It's exhausting.
1: It's very exhausting. (laughs) Um, How do you structure your time outside of improv? I want to talk briefly. I know that you're a game nut. You love games. (laughs) And I know that you're a very social guy. Yeah. Um, So like just walk me briefly through like Matt Shafiq offstage, Matt Shafiq after dark, Matt Shafiq unplugged. (laughs) What's
0: going on here? Uh, I do love games. And uh, in the past, like, I want to say six or seven years, I've discovered that the world has gone through a a board gaming renaissance. And this is where most of your audience tunes out, I suppose. But, uh, (laughs) maybe not a lot of gamers. Maybe (laughs) not. It's true. It's true. And God bless them. There's a few of them on metal boy and a few of them that are not on board at all, but, uh, (laughs) I love you, Chrissy. Um, (laughs) I'm with you, Chrissy. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, I love, social gatherings that revolve around like we're going to play this really in-depth board game for the next four hours or six hours or whatever it is like, or, or multiple board games over the next six hours, like a Sunday afternoon or evening spent doing that is often can very well be the highlight of my week. Mm-hmm. And like, it's, I think to a lot of people who like haven't, who, who've who like grew up just playing Monopoly and a couple other games, that sounds insane, but like a lot of really cool, clever, nuanced games have come out in the past, like couple past like decade and a half or so that um, make for a really just fun, engaging experience. And that's kind of my thing. Like uh, I get actually antsy like at parties. If you bring me to a party and it's just drinking drugs maybe and socializing, like I don't want to spend more than 45 minutes there. You got to um, go to
1: bigger parties, man. You got to go to drugs. Definitely.
0: <laughs> <months>. <laughs> You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, but I, my thing uh, is there any social gathering I'm at? I'm like, hey, who wants to play, uh, who wants to get the game of celebrity going or something like that? Like, that's just like my natural inclination in a social gathering is how can I form something fun and organized where we're all competing uh-huh. or playing together or whatever it is? And I have games that I can do with a scrap of paper. I'll bring stuff from home. You know, uh, Metal Boy uh, hung out over Labor Day weekend, and I sent an email to everyone that made them laugh very much about, like, all right, I'm just going to send a list of board games. You guys rank them from one to five, and you guys tell me what you want, and they all... We're like laughing, but all like, this is a joke, right? This is definitely a joke because uh, we would believe you if it wasn't a joke <laughs> we're not doing it either way. Um, so anyways, i uh, uh, you know on top of that, you know uh, video games less and less time for because they're, they're very time consuming, and if I'm going to set as high time for games, I do like combining a social gathering with Uh, a game that I have. So So it's, it's
1: your way of relate. It's not just sitting at home playing video games. It's, it's the structure and the organization helps you to better relate to people.
0: Yeah. I think, I think I have a better time. I think it's easier for me to socialize that way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, not that I'm like have a hard time being social around people, but I just like, like, I don't know. how do people sit around and just talk for hours and hours and hours whatever, you know, like this is a way for us to engage and like, you can talk while playing a board game, but you can also it's something to like come back to, yeah, or something. I don't know. I probably sound weirdly antisocial right now, or something like I have some come on, on the spectrum or something. But. No,
1: you sound very social. You have a plan for your sociability. Thank you. Every, like everybody has their style of how they feel comfortable socializing yeah. with people. I, and I'm I'm the I'm the talker guy. Yeah, I like deep conversations. Yeah. I like heart to hearts. Sure. I don't like them all the time. In fact, yeah. I hate them all the time. <laughs> but I like the occasional heart to heart, yeah. and and so like social situations don't always do it for me. Yeah, um, they're not like the best setup for that thing. Right. You know? So like, and, and like games are also something that I struggle with. I, my attention span for like organized time tends to kind of drift pretty quickly.
0: Interesting. When, when's the last time you like gave it a shot? Like, what's the last game you remember like being involved in?
1: Um. Honestly, the only time I really had the attention span for it was when I was working on the cruise ship for Second City. Okay. Um, Because we would have like a a game night where the cast would get together and we would play um, this game, Phase 10. It's a card game. I'm going to do a very bad job of explaining it. Okay. You're dealt like a um, bunch of cards and. Everyone starts at phase one, and there's like a certain, you're looking to get rid of a certain number of cards and get a certain number of cards in order to beat phase one. Okay. So when you beat phase one, you move on to phase two, and now you have to change your strategy to give up a certain number of different kinds of cards, whatever it is. So everyone starts at phase one, but as you go on, you might be at phase three, Evan might be at phase six, and I might be at phase one. And so, not only are we playing our own individual thing, but we're being aware of where everyone else is and deliberately trying to fuck up their game to knock them back down to the previous phase. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty fun. It was fun, and I think only in that specific situation was it really fun, where yeah. I was like desperate for <laughs> desperate for activity with with other people. Yeah, my yeah, age.
0: yeah. You you would never volunteer to like sign up for like a game night or something like that, Dave. I really don't have the attention span for it. Yeah, you know what? I do love I love doing puzzles. Okay. I like
1: that. That's great. Yeah, I like I like strategic puzzling. Yeah, that's fun.
0: Um, I'd be curious. Do you ever play like Risk in your life or no, anything kind of like a strategy game like that? No. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm. You're probably right that like it's probably not for you. But like I, I, I love to find the game like that one game that a person likes. How about chess? Did you ever get into chess? Yeah, I do. I, I
1: do like chess. Okay, but I'm not one of those. I'm one of those guys where I can play a game of chess. Yeah. And really enjoy myself, and then when it suggested another game, I immediately go like, ah, <laughs> I'd rather read now. Actually, I'd rather yeah. go off by myself and go read.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, because um, yeah, there's tons of like two player strategy games or like bigger strategy games that I that I think like, I think the key to a, an engaging game, as opposed to like a Monopoly or something, is like you know uh, you're making you're constantly making interesting decisions, mm-hmm. and in a really good strategy game, like you're like you are saying with the card game, you are making decisions that are not only beneficial to you, but also detrimental to the other players and stuff. And I think like it engages this part of my brain that I I don't think I get anywhere else. And it's so pleasurable and I I get, I derive so much enjoyment from it that like, I I can't imagine my life without it.
1: What about like role playing games? Is that part of your thing too?
0: Those are fun too. Uh, So like, I mostly play them via video games because, uh, something like a Dungeons and Dragons group, which I've been a part of a couple of times in my life, uh, really, really fun. And that's actually the combination of gaming and improv. I think when you're uh, playing a role, have you ever played D and D before? I never have. Yeah. It's, it, it can be like, it's really tough to, to commit to and organize. And you gotta have someone who like playing a dungeon master who can really weave a story, but that a story that's flexible enough for anyone to do anything. Um, but i think it's that's incredibly enjoyable um and just in general like like i have that part of my brain that loves like leveling up you know and mm-hmm. i i'm obsessed with my fitbit and i i'm tracking my steps constantly and and all all those things that like get you uh, raising a number from 1 to 2 to 5 to 7 and make you feel like you're making progress in something, that's definitely a part of my brain. That 11 RPGs definitely tap into that because, mm-hmm. you know, you take your little dinky warrior guy out and, and you're fighting little slimes and then eventually you're fighting dragons and it, you feel like you're accomplishing something even though it's, you know, all numbers and pixels and whatever.
1: The closest I can get to that are, like, stupid little Flash games. Yeah. I don't know if Flash is even a thing still, but, like, those like, <laughs> cheap games you get on, like, notdoppler.com or something like that. Yeah. Where like you'll start off like shooting zombies and you're driving in like a like a like a motorbike. Yeah. And then you gotta like earn the money and shit to like eventually drive like an armored school bus. It's yeah. the closest I get to like leveling up and being excited for like, okay, yeah. I'm strong enough now where I can just kill all these fucking yeah. zombies. Yeah. And then I get bored and <laughs> yeah. stop playing that game. Inevitably. <laughs> Where did this come from? When did this like, how far back does this go?
0: Games are even further back than me being a, a class clown or finding that I, I was funny. like, um, I had an Atari 2600 when I was like four years old and there was like no turning back. I got an NES the minute it came out. I pretty much owned, I want to say like 90% of the major video game systems that have come out okay. over the past yeah, three decades. And, um, and, uh, for a while it was like just my go-to thing that I would do uh, whenever I had any kind of downtime. It's like, all right, turn off, fire up the NES, the SNES, whatever. Um, and uh, I, I played, loved all genres of games. It's just, it's, it's the thing I've like invested uh, the most in. Like, Even
1: Friday the 13th on original NES? I
0: beat Friday the 13th on the original NES. I classically, terrible game from a design standpoint, but that it had its own, there's something almost masochistic about some of those early NES games, uh, Ghost and goblins. And, uh, there are so many impossibly difficult, but also if you could do it, Mike Tyson's punch out, oh, yeah. like I have these, these badges that I wear for telling people like, Oh, by the way, I beat Mike Tyson. Like, like, <laughs> like it, it was so hard and it took so much time and effort, but like the victory you feel, uh, from pulling it off, it's live. It's just, you know, rote memorization, but, uh, it, it felt like I made, I felt like the greatest thing I could accomplish as like an eight year old, right? Mm. Like what can you do as an eight year old? That's like notable, but like I did something that like most adults (laughs) couldn't do, you know, most people, you know, couldn't do. And, and so there's something uh, incredibly addictive about that. Um, Playing with other people, the competitiveness is really addicting Um, the world building, you know, playing a game like Zelda and just exploring this world for the first time in your life that like anything could happen. You're in a dungeon and there's like a, you could try putting a bomb on that wall and maybe there's another wall behind it and like discovering secrets and unlocking and like building up an inventory. Like I would go from playing Zelda for hours to dressing up as link. My mom made me a link costume when I was a kid and I just had a backpack full of junk that I would run around my basement and pretend everything had a use. And like, it makes no sense in that context, but like in a video game, it does like Mm -hmm. everything you pick up has a value and can be used somewhere. And uh, that's another addictive element. I feel like everything about gaming, hits a particular part of my brain uh, uh in a very pleasurable way and uh and I've kept it up my entire life
1: I've beat one game in my life <laughs> which one um uh Star Wars Shadow of the Empire on uh, Nintendo 64 Wow
0: I remember that game I have a very specific memory of that game um so I'm also a completionist mm-hmm. so I don't know how much time you put into the game, but do you remember how throughout the game there'd be those little um, symbols you could try to collect? Yes, I got them. Okay, so I went so far as to try to get every single one of them, and some of them were so hard to get. You know, they'd be like you're on a train, and at the beginning of the level, and you have to like jump at just the right time to grab one of them. And I I have memories of like like missing it, restart, start up stage over, grabbing, you know, missing it, restart, start over, and like that's hours of my life trying to jump to collect this dumb thing that wasn't even required to be the game. Yes. It was a,
1: a, a little added bonus for you. Yeah. I, I don't know what it was about that game in particular. It, that one felt more cinematic to me somehow. It, it, it felt like, oh, I could lose myself playing this. Whereas other ones, I, I, after 15 minutes, I'm like, okay, I, I
0: get it. That's interesting. I always love picking the brains of people who like only get hooked by like one or two games in their life. Because like, what is it about that one game? I would speculate... Um, that was one of the first games. The N sixty four was the first uh, generation of systems that had like three D effects and mm-hmm. stuff. So like Super Mario uh, uh, World, N uh, sixty four was the first game where you could like run around in a three dimensional camera that you could spin around. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like this game, you know, had that. Only it was in the Star Wars universe, so it had like the music that you're, you know the uh, uh, John Williams. John Williams That's probably a big part of it. Yeah,
1: I'm not even a Star Wars guy. But yeah, I didn't think you were. That that score is probably a really big part of yeah of it. Uh, um so all right I'm always curious about this because i I have friends who are very big on um the future of gaming as being the future of of like the arts, but I can't see it because I don't relate to gaming sure Can you walk me through that is that a is that a a a topic of interest and passion to you
0: yeah, it kind of is uh I don't know that I, I agree with that statement um it definitely won't ever be like the be all end all of our Like it won't take over theater. It won't take over television. It won't take over movies. Um, games can tell a very specific kind of story that can't be done in any other context, where you are the protagonist or the antagonist, or maybe you don't know what you are, um, but you're playing a role in this narrative that is unveiling before you. And there's always that weird push and pull between the game designer and the person playing the game where, you know, uh, they're trying to tell a certain story, even if it's a very open ended story, you know, you can make choices throughout, you know, you walk into a room and, uh, there's a left door and there's a right door and the narrator wants you to go left ultimately, but they want to give you, feel like you have some choices. So they open up the right door, right door will eventually lead to some kind of dead end. So you'll backtrack and go through the left door. And that's where the next part of the story is. Um, I think that, uh, I've played games that have been really engaging stories uh, that I love. And I try to express to people like, Oh, this is why this is so amazing. And if you don't really play games at all, it probably doesn't mean that much to you. Uh, uh, so there's definitely a future and, and we're still discovering it too. Games, game, especially game with with legitimate narration uh, and stories are relatively new. This is something that's really only developed in the past, like t- maybe two decades from being generous. Um, uh, but I think there's definitely a future in that. You know, VR technology is is popping up right now and there's something so immersive about that, like being in that world in a way that you could never have experienced before. Um, but it, it won't ever replace traditional narrative, A, because there are just going to be people who just... You know, there was a thing with, uh, in movie theaters, like two decades ago, that was supposed to be the way with the future where people could control what happened when the movie, you would hit a button, like uh, a prompt would come up during parts of the movie where you could say, should this guy jump here? Should he go back and get the girl here? And it failed. How
1: annoying. And yeah.
0: People immediately were just like, I don't, I don't want to do things. Yeah. I just, I would just tell me the story. Just yeah. Let me see what happens. And yeah, like for me, there's a certain appeal on that. Yeah. To, be engaged with it, but that's a, I think it's a, a smaller percentage of people who are willing to engage in that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, if you ever have the time, I can sit down with you and go over like some really clever ways uh, games have told stories that no other medium can. Um, but it, it's it's going to be one uh, uh, leg on the table of the future of, of narratives and stuff.
1: Can you give me a taste of one? Uh, uh, like intro- like what would be, what would be a, what would be like one game that's left an impression on you? Hmm. I'll share a movie that's left an impression on me. <laughs> share a game that's left an impression on you.
0: Um, let's see, what's a good one? Uh, a game came out a couple years ago called uh, Mass Effect. It was a trilogy. They put out three of them. That was this really nice balance. It, it was like a space opera. You were a character named Shepard and you gave your character his first name and they always said Shepard. So it, these little subtle touches that make you feel immersed without you know them having to record every possible name in the dictionary. So like I was Matt Shepard and they always call the character Matt Shepard. That's a minor detail. But um, so in this space opera, you are this uh, commander of a, of a space fleet who is going around trying to save the galaxy from this impending threat that eventually becomes a very big deal. Um, they gave you lots of moments throughout the story where you have options of what to say and how to react to certain situations and it's subtle uh uh usually you know if you're doing like and it's not like you're a good guy or a bad guy it's more like you're like kind of a renegade or you're just more of an honorable dude um and mostly at times you can make either decision and uh the situation will get resolved one way or another um you could choose to walk into a bar and bully the person at the bar to get information and that person will give you what you need to know, or you can walk in there and bribe him, or you could walk in there and, uh, you know, tell a few jokes, get a few beers in them and get the information out of him. All those things will ultimately succeed. But subtly over the course of the game, your character becomes known as more of this like renegade type character or more of this thing is known as called the paragon. Um, and uh it affects how other characters treat you it affects your like romantic possibilities and stuff and it just becomes a story that feels like your own because you know even though the programmers are behind the scenes creating like just certain branching pathways and stuff it's a really engaging story but the 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 character you choose to be in that story uh very much is is your own the one that you decided you created you know and 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 and
1: over the series of choices you grow your character evolves
0: yeah yeah he certainly does um there's a great moment. So the, the best moment in the entire series is in the second chapter of the game, the second uh, game in the series. There's uh, a big battle coming up uh, uh, that, you know, it's kind of what's called a suicide mission. Your characters are not expected to survive. Um, and all of your teammates, there's this kind of background uh, uh, data. The game is keeping on like how many times you interact with them and how much they value you and trust you as a leader. So you go into this final encounter on this planet and uh, uh, do this impossible mission. And there are characters you can choose that are better suited for situations. That's kind of the obvious thing. But um, you're making gut decisions on the fly throughout the mission. And depending on how much they trust you is how much they'll invest themselves in it. And it's all, again, all calculations and stuff. But it's possible for you to beat that mission with everyone surviving or no one surviving besides you. Mm uh and that that spectrum of things is possible you literally don't know who's going to survive the mission of these comrades that you've been playing with for the past you know 30 hours of this game characters you've really grown to love and trust um and any of them can potentially die uh is, and, and like and you know it's your fault because the game you, know, you can look it up the game you're you know that anyone can survive it's not scripted um that moment is like the highlight of the series because it's so fascinating and fyi I, I saved everyone. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> My Commander Shepard was a a hero that day.
1: It's interesting. So you walk out of that game, your character develops a certain amount of karma over the course of the game. Yes. Uh, 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 and you walk out of that game like emotionally affected as a player. You yourself have been moved by yeah. the events that, that you have helped to forge.
0: Yeah. And, and what's fascinating, too, is you can go back and play the game again, which is like, I'm going to go opposite of my instincts the entire time. And yeah. you'll see a game that plays out very differently. You know, certain end points are going to happen no matter what. But, like, seeing the small interactions and all that scripting, you think about from a variety of perspectives, to write all those different action interactions out in different ways is fascinating. But, yeah.
1: That makes me think, to, like, relate it back to improv for a second, of, of I think that there are, like, people who approach improv – more from a strictly comedic point of view. Mm-hmm. And people who approach improv more from a strictly improv point of view, comedy's like a secondary goal. I think like TJ and Dave are like the examples par excellence of that one yeah. where they claim to not care at all about if it's funny. Right. And then you can name any any number of groups where like, you know, the comedy is the main goal of it. And whatever it takes. Bad improv is fine. Yeah. Get a big laugh. Incidentally, I should say I'm not making a moral judgment one way or the other. I don't care. But it kind of makes me think of that, that the person who's committed more to the playing of the comedy of what they're creating is a little bit more like a character in a video game that from start to finish remains exactly the same. And you're simply powering through a series of obstacles, scoring points and powering up along the way. Yeah. But essentially that purpose remains one direction. Mm -hmm versus committing more to the improv side of it, which is to say that you go in with certain things defined, but there's allowing for character growth, development, change, karma, effect, et cetera, over the course of the show. There's yeah. a surprise to find out how this is all going to end up for this person. Yeah. No I, comment.
0: No, I, I like that. Um, and I think like definitely growing up and in my early days of improv, I was very much that person who just like wanted to... Do everything the best way possible. You know, figure out how to bang, bang, bang. to win with improv. You know, I wanted to have the best possible scenes, maximize my laughs. Right. You know, and in games, you know, just play to win, score as many points as possible. Um, but I think over the years, like there is that that pleasure in and not in the unknown and not knowing and, and letting things develop, letting things grow. You know, I, I love I love that I can go into an improv scene right now and not have any idea about a character and surprise myself a little bit, uh, you know, when I say something that's like, oh, I just discovered my character's philosophy, you know, Um, uh, and that just comes from listening and just comes from, you know, reacting naturally. There's a little bit of that in, in these games too where you don't, your character is very much a blank slate and the game will present you with sort of kind of impossible decisions where you know there's no necessarily this is the this is the right thing to do or even the good guy thing to do it's like these are just two kind of shitty choices which of these two shitty choices are you going to choose to do as as the commander as the as a choice the choice maker in the situation and those are always always like those moments again like i think uh, that a person just experiencing a story watching a movie reading a book we'll never get to experience uh, and it's something that games uniquely can do. And I think, I think I love, I love role-playing and you do that on the improv stage and you do that in games as well.
1: Matt, I'm going to have you improvise now. (laughs) Okay. A new
0: segment on the podcast. This
1: is called improvising a very serious scene opposite a jar of pickles. (laughs) Evan is pulling out a jar of pickles right now. This is going to be your scene partner. This is a BNG New York deli style pickle jar. All right. It's filled, hasn't been opened, filled with pickles. (laughs) This is going to be your scene partner. Will not speak back to you. Here's how this goes. I'm going to give you a scenario, and I'm going to give you about a minute to two minutes to improvise that scenario. Your scene partner is this jar of pickles. It will okay. not talk back to you because okay. it's a jar of pickles. It has no. It's not alive. It's not sentient at all. But we're going to pretend. Uh, um, your job in this is to improvise the best, very serious dramatic scene that you can with this jar of pickles as your scene partner. Okay. The only rule of this is that when you refer to the jar of pickles, you call it jar of pickles. That is its name and okay. the same. Uh, we don't happen to have a suggestion from the uh, tweeters here, do we? Do we? We haven't vetted this yet. All right, screw it. We'll do it for the next one. I have one. <laughs> All right, Matt, here's your suggestion. Okay. You're, uh, you, you have a niece, your brother's daughter, and uh, uh, she's been like in and out of trouble. She's hung with the wrong crowd for a while. She's, she's kind of Made some poor choices. Um, she developed a drug problem. Her father, your brother, her mother have had enough They're sick of her uh, 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 in a rage, they said some things that you can't take back, and she kind of split, and you took her in thinking that like all this all this woman needs is like affection and understanding and like because you don't have the same relationship as a parent you're going to be you're going to be good to her. How old is she about? It's like 16, okay. 17. Uh-huh. <clears throat> um but real problematic, real difficult. Yeah. And and not not doing a great job at accepting other people's affection, but you've decided, you know, I'm going to do what it takes to see this through. You know that she needs help, but you also know that help isn't going to set in until someone's ready for help, until they ask for it. So you've done everything that you can to help her. You came home earlier tonight to find she's gone. All your shit is gone. She took all your shit uh, 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 for drug money. So you've had it like up to, you've like brimming over, right? Yeah. So now you've been out driving around all night, Matt. (laughs) Been driving around all night. And uh, you finally found her. You found her asleep in a gutter with a couple of other like people like on drugs asleep in a gutter. You know what I mean? So the angriest part's already over. You, You picked her up, right? You shook her you threw her in your car and you've like vented and whatnot. and now what you're doing, you're sitting opposite opposite your niece, this jar of pickles at a diner. She's on her fourth cup of coffee that you, you're you're buying for her, and now's the moment where you're telling her enough is enough. Match your feet, take it away. very seriously in opposite a jar of pickles.
0: Listen, um I don't know how to go forward from here you know i I want to treat you like an adult a jar of pickles, but uh you know you you've clearly not given me a good reason to do that um, i i this is obviously lectures aren't what what's gonna work here, so i'm gonna i'm gonna skip past that part and just level with you here and say that i you know i don't know I don't know what happens next i don't don't know what happens tomorrow. Uh, you seem to want to live this life you're living, and no one can change that except for you. So, uh, you can't stay with me anymore. Uh, I I can't continue to let you ransack my house and do whatever you can to keep yourself as a drug hack. And I won't let myself be the one who finds you, uh, not unconscious, but something worse. So, uh, you know, starting tomorrow, we're going to start looking into other, uh, other options. And I don't know what that is. Some kind of juvenile detention. I don't know. I, I don't, 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 this is the part where I talk. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and this is the moment where the waiter comes in and says, can I get you anything else?
0: Uh yeah. Uh you know what? Um I could go for a chocolate milkshake. <laughs> that
1: <scene>. <laughs> 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 and that was a very serious scene, improvised opposite of jar pickles. Evan, I think that was our, our best serious scene yet.
0: <gasps> wow.
1: Very serious, very Take solid.
0: That, Carly and everyone else. <laughs> Especially <laughs> Suli. I want Suli. you to learn a lesson from this, Suli. <laughs> uh,
1: if you've been listening this far, I'm still holding a grudge against you, Suli. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, beautiful. I think we're going to end the conversation there in that wonderful note. Is there anything you want to plug that you got coming up? You're in the Armando Diaz experience Saturdays at seven 30 metal Boy is on Wednesdays. You're playing 10 o'clock for the rest of October. Yes. Uh,
0: I think we're bouncing around a little bit. I think oh. we're like at nine one day and seven another day also. So cool. just check the calendar. Great. Anything else? Uh, I just want to mention Eli Itzkowitz who was feeling, uh, sad that he hasn't been mentioned on this podcast in a while. So Eli, uh, you're also a member of MOA, and we all love you. Eli,
1: give me a call. I'm, you have my number. I know you do. We'll put you on the podcast. I will bump you in line, Eli. Let's talk. We're going to talk Superman. It's going to be good, buddy, you and me. Matt Shafiq, thank you very much for talking. Thank you, Lewis. And thank you all for listening. Uh, A couple of other big thank yous, of course, to our producer and engineer, Evan Ford-Barden, to our executive producer, Ed Herpsman, and to all of you wonderful people for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, please go onto iTunes, give us a positive rating, a nice shout-out. is very welcome indeed. If you have a suggestion for a very serious scene you'd like to hear improvised, by an excellent improviser opposite a jar of pickles, you can tweet that to us at magnet theater. That is magnet theater hashtag.com. Thank you once again to today's guest. <laughs> you just said hashtag.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it all works though, right? Like it doesn't really make a difference. At this point you can type in anything and it just tells you. You know, Megan sometimes gets like little like notifications on her computer saying if you leave now, you could be at the Magnet Theater in like twenty-two minutes and she's like, how does it know I have to be I didn't put anything in it. spooky how it knows who you are. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Frightening, very upsetting. <laughs> we're living in, a, in a, it's very we're losing our humanity a little bit every day. Uh, <laughs> thanks Matt. <laughs> Bye everyone. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Magnet podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Our podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.